Minnesota's role in countering extremism. Welcome to Playing Politics, a podcast from the Star Tribune's editorial board. I'm John Rash. Joining me is editorial writer Jill Burkham, who on behalf of the editorial board wrote this Sunday's editorial about efforts to counter radicalization in Minnesota's Somali community. Well, Jill, let's first start with some numbers. What are the current estimates of Minnesota's Somali population, and how many Minnesota men of Somali descent have left to become foreign fighters back in Africa? Well, of course, the Minneapolis and St. Paul area is the nation's largest Somali settlement. Um, Census estimates uh, put our Somali Uh, American population at between, uh, I believe, 26 and 36,000. And there are a lot of people who estimate that it is much higher than that. Um, In terms of how many uh, Minnesota men of Somali descent descent have left to become foreign fighters, there's multiple destinations um, where they've gone. Um, The first wave of, of Minnesotans to leave went to Africa to fight for a group called Al-Shabaab. And I believe the official estimates are around 50 uh, people from Minnesota who left to fight for that group. Now, of course, um, you know, it shifted, of course, to the Middle East and the, the fighting going on in Syria and Iraq. And according to a state report, 15 of the 58 foreign fighters um, who have gone to fight for ISIL have come from Minnesota. So you can see why Minnesota really is on the front lines when it comes to countering radicalization. And it's really a combination of both. Well, those Minnesotans who are on the front lines are often concentrated in certain cities. In Minneapolis, there's a particular neighborhood that has a very high density of people of Somali descent. And there seems to be some consensus about the methods to reach the people within these groups, the disillusioned youth, and dissuade them from turning to al-Shabaab or other terrorist groups. What are those methods? Well, I've actually seen uh, people talk about this, and the phrase that they use is that it's not rocket science. It really comes down to integrating new immigrants into our community, uh, something that Minnesota really has a long history of doing successfully and and welcoming uh, new citizens uh, to the state. Um, You know, it comes down to making youth and their families feel like they are part of the community, making them feel like they're, you know, they have opportunities, that what they say matters, that they're involved, um, and that they have a future here. So it really does come down to, you know, basic things like community organizations, youth sports, um, things that create a sense of, of, uh, you know, teamwork, um, cooperation, and feeling like they belong. And of course, it doesn't just have to be sports. You know, there's a group that also um, is has established an urban 4-H program to get kids involved in technology um, and also feel like they're a part of things. You know, it could be after school programs. It could be having a place to go. Um, but it, it really isn't all that hard. It's the hard part is actually making it happen. Well, you mentioned it doesn't have to be sports, but particularly with younger males, sports is often a significant draw. And the beautiful game, as it's called globally, or soccer, is of particular importance. Tell us a bit about what the West Bank Athletic Club and a very charismatic coach named Ahmed, what he is trying to do with the community. So, of course, you're referring to Coach Ahmed Ismail. And he is a father of three from Savage, Minnesota, of course, a suburban community in the Twin Cities. But for about the last 12 years, um, mostly on his own time and on his own dime, 
he has been the the organizer of something called the West Bank Athletic Club. And, and what it is is just an after-school soccer program. Um, they have practices on most days of the week. Um, they also have some tournaments. They have a track record of success. And he's got, um, I believe, about 140 kids in the program. He's got a waiting list of over 100 kids um, that can't get in simply because he doesn't have the time, he doesn't have the, the resources to get them involved, although clearly he would love to make it happen. I think if you asked Coach, as he's known, um, how many kids he would, he would like to serve, and he would say a 1,000 uh, because he clearly, clearly likes them and is dedicated to them. Um, the, the kids practice, um, like I said, most days out of the week over in a partition gym at the Phillips Community Center, which is in South Minneapolis. And uh, they just don't have the space to go anywhere else, which limits the number of kids that they can take. And you go in and the kids are, you know, waiting to play. They play in shifts because there's just not enough room for them. They have one soccer ball. It is so worn, you can barely see the patches on the ball. And, and yet they're so enthusiastic. Um, they clearly love coach. As soon as he comes into the gym, you know, they take a break and they cluster around him. Um, many uh, households in the Somali community, um, you know, are, are headed by mothers. And so coach is just this fantastic father figure in the lives of these young kids. And, you know, he's patting them on the back. They're telling him about how they're doing in school. He even calls up schools sometimes um, to make sure that his kids are doing okay and, you know, make sure that, that they can practice with him, that they don't have other things to do. Um, he's joined by volunteer coaches. Um, these are players who have played for him, and they're now going on to college. But they still come back, and they still play for coach, and they still, you know, are a part of, of the community that he has created and you know and i think anybody you know who's raised a family you know knows how critical it is to have a, somebody like a coach be involved in young people's lives and and just how much it makes them feel part of the community and makes them want to strive to do better well programs like the west bank athletic club and other efforts seem sensible to most minnesotans including and perhaps especially those in the somali community but there are some dissenting voices who have pushed that back a little bit on some of the government involvement. What are their what's their perspective on this issue? Well, it, it's important, you know, as as we talk about this, to remember that, you know, these Minnesotans have come from a, a you know a place that is war torn, where they have seen the government abuse or even kill, you know, members of their families, destroy their communities, and so. There is an understandable, um, I think, reluctance and you know to to ha have contact with law enforcement, or you know to that, that there might be surveillance of of their activities here in their new homeland, not understanding our longstanding constitutional um, protections against that. And so, um, I think you have some in the community who believe that, you know, um, advocacy for funding, such as from U.S. Attorney Andy Luger, means that, that uh, you know, the prime purpose of funds for local development and youth development are actually, you know, to put in place government surveillance or to catch kids um, who are, you know, potentially being radicalized and to throw them into jail. And so you've got you know, the dual purpose of countering radicalization, but also building up the community, creating some dissonance and some concerns 
in the community. Um, and I've spoken to a number of people who share those concerns. Um, Jaylani Hussein, who leads the, the chapter, the Minnesota chapter of CARE, uh, the Council on American Islamic Relations, is probably, you know, the, the chief spokesman or the lead spokesman um, relaying those concerns. And, you know, I, I understand where he's coming from. At the same time, I think that he badly underestimates you know, the motivations of Minnesotans who want to help his community. We have a long history of supporting new immigrants, and I think that Minnesota has a long history of helping um, new immigrants succeed here um, and, and that we want this community to do better for many reasons. Well, for many Minnesotans, including Coach Ahmed, funding is, of course, a problem, as it is with so many other public policy issues. Considering what's happening or perhaps not happening with organizations like the West Bank Athletic Club, what does the editorial urge be done nationally, and what does does it urge be done by the Minnesota State Legislature, the city of Minneapolis, and indeed private groups? Well, unfortunately, the terrorists are moving more quickly than the policymakers. And so, um, you know, the terrorists in particular in this, you know, in, in these later years are building on the work that has been done by al-Shabaab um, in the mid-2000s here in the Twin Cities. Um, you add to, to the digital media um, connections and also the fact that, you know, some some kids here who have, have siblings who have gone to fight overseas, and it, it creates a very vulnerable community, unfortunately. And, you know, there are many, many competing um, interests who want, you know, a, a shrinking share of the public resources um, that are available. And, and so I, I just don't think that policymakers either here um, or in Washington, D.C., have understood the problem or have necessarily, you know, understood that we have all this research that tells us what we need to do, this local engagement, youth development, and, and maybe not understanding, you know, that that the funds have really lagged behind the research and, and, and executing this to make this strategy happen and to make sure that the funds are flowing to these organizations. Um, you add to that that the Somali community, you know, hasn't had enough advocates here or on Capitol Hill. And then the concerns, you know, raised by in this presidential race about Muslims and, and terrorists. And it's just it's it's created a situation where the funding has not flowed to local efforts the way that it should. There are indeed some bills in the Minnesota legislature and there's about there are about four weeks left in this session. Could those help this situation? We have some really pragmatic steps that uh, some uh, far-sighted lawmakers have teed up for us, and it seems to me, you know, that our policymakers of both parties should seize on these steps to make them happen. They're they're just very practical and would really make a difference. And of course, um, one of the pieces of legislation is known as the Youth Prize Bill, and what it would do is provide two million dollars in state money for grants that would go through a nonprofit called Youth Prize to go to local efforts. Coach Ahmed's team, for example, would be eligible to apply for this funding. Um, like I said, it seems like that should, should uh, um, gain support very easily. The second one, um, I think, is less well known than the Youth Prize bill. 
And and there is a, a, a bill that calls for expanding the Bryan Coil Center. And John, you mentioned earlier in our conversation, there's there's neighborhoods, you know, that are primarily home to Somali Americans in the Twin Cities. One of those is the Cedar Riverside neighborhood, you know, Twin City residents, Minnesotans have driven by the the neighborhood many, many times. These are are the high rises just off 35W. With the multicolored panels. With the multicolored panels. And the Coil Center is located in that neighborhood. And you don't realize how densely populated this neighborhood is until you go over there and you walk around. I wonder how many Minnesotans have done this. I hadn't until recently, unfortunately. And there's there's multiple high-rise complexes, not just the ones with the colorful panels. But you realize, especially as a mom or a dad, that, that there is, you know, just barely any green space. There's this tiny courier park, but then really that's it. There that, are high-rises going up. That Highway 94, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Yes. This is this is a neighborhood that is, is um, cut off from the surrounding area, not just by Interstate 94, but by Interstate 35W. Um, and then you have the blue and green light rail lines that are running on, on other sides of it. And then, um, uh, you know, it's, it's cut off from the rest of the community by big University of Minnesota buildings, the Mississippi River. Um, and there's just there's no place for kids to go and hang out. There's no there's, you know, few places for kids to go and play if they're young. And the Coil Center really is about it. And until you walk in the, the Coil Center and you realize every inch of the of the, the building space is used, you don't quite understand what a vital resource this is. Um, they do have a gym, but um, it's it's just booked up constantly because it's used for everything from basketball games to, uh, you know, it's a gym for a, a neighborhood school. Um, you know, there are sometimes religious services or, or community celebrations there. It's, it's just engaged and in use every single minute of the day. Um, it's also home to house to offices for many community organizations. They need more space. They already have plans drawn up to do this. It would cost, you know, five to six million dollars to do it. And it would be a way to make sure that kids who go there um, and spend most of their after school hours always have a place to go. It would ensure that elders can come over and, and maybe have exercise classes. But there's just no place else in the neighborhood. So to me, this is a, a very pragmatic, practical step to make sure that you get kids out of their apartments um, and you get they're engaging with their families and their communities. It's an easy way to make this happen. Well, we'll see if those pragmatic, practical steps do indeed get any traction in the next four weeks in the legislature as well as nationally. And we'll certainly look for the editorial that runs on Sunday, April 24th in the Star Tribune. And that's a wrap for this week's edition of Playing Politics, which can be heard on the Star Tribune's website and by subscribing through iTunes. Jill Burkham, thank you very much for joining me, and thank you for listening and for reading the Star Tribune.